Hello and welcome to our podcast, In Diverse Conversations. At In Diverse Company, we help organisations to create inclusive cultures that are not just good for business, but good for people too. We've been fortunate enough to meet some fantastic influencers in this space that really brings to life why inclusion is important, not just from a work perspective, but also the effects of change in the wider society. We'll be covering topics such as mental well-being, social mobility, men's mental health, neurodiversity and everything in between. Our podcast series is a chance for our listeners to be able to share some fantastic stories as well as taking away some key insights that can be put into practice. We hope you find this valuable. Today we have Petrod Belzebor and Chris Godwin joining us today to discuss mental well health um, in the workplace and how to promote an inclusive culture around mental well-being. So Chris, Petra, thank you for joining me. Petra, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, please? So I'm a mental health consultant. I work with a range of industries and businesses around creating mentally healthy work cultures. My background is psychotherapy coaching we run training I'm pretty busy I've got a podcast as well so it's a pretty busy time and Chris could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself please yeah so I run a production company called Inner Eye Productions and basically what we do is we make films to change behavior and to challenge people to kind of think about different mindsets I specialize mainly in the mental health area Mm -hmm. so these are films which are covering lots of different subjects from postnatal depression through to self-harm through to child sexual abuse. And they're little dramas that effectively use the power of storytelling to help people reflect on their own practice and what they do in the workplace, but equally to reflect on the people that they might be coming into contact with as well. Thank you. Really interesting, both of you coming from such... um different backgrounds on what is a complex and you know wide-ranging area of inclusion so thank you for joining us today if I could start off with asking you guys how you're feeling today and how would you mark your mental well-being on a scale of one to ten so ten being the best ten being amazing Amazing. one being very not so very awful Yeah. yeah I'd probably put myself at an eight And it's kind of counterintuitive, but I just went away for the weekend. And sometimes when I stop, that's actually when I feel the stuff, you know, Mm. because I'm quite um, into my work. And Mm. so I I kind of drive forward quite intensely. And so sometimes when I stop, I kind of go, whoa, I need to recalibrate a little bit. So I'd say eight eight out of ten. Okay, cool. So the break helps. Well, it's kind of roller coastery because yeah. it kind of goes whoa. I kind yeah. of I have to adjust into the break before yeah. the break helps, which yeah. does mean it's good, and I probably need to do them more often. <laughs> and Chris, how are you today? So I'm pretty good. I've just finished editing a film, which I'm happy about. Literally finished that late on Friday evening, but I'm slightly nervous as well okay. because I've got the screening of the film with the client this afternoon. So there's a high heightened anxiety levels there. Yeah. So I would probably put myself. I probably put myself at an eight at the moment. I think my score's been knocked down a bit by this, this anxiety that yeah. I'm feeling about this afternoon. Yeah. So ask me at the end of the day, you never know where <laughs> I'll be. So I thought we'd start the session with a light-hearted quick-fire round where I'll just ask you two options and then you let me know which one really you feel in the most. <laughs> so if we start off with sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's funny. You know, it's really funny to ask this question because, because, I, because on, on Saturday morning I woke up and I said to my wife, what a lovely 
sunset and she said no 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 that's a sunrise <laughs> so so I'm, so I'm slightly confused I was like it at both the beginning of, of the day or was it the end of the day it, it was, yeah it was the morning so sunrise. yeah sunrise yeah, okay thanks I'm, I'm learning something <laughs> so we're going sunrise sunrise okay yeah. and whilst walking or exercising do you prefer music or podcasts podcast music urban or rural urban rural <laughs> <laughs> Why are we friends? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Phone call or text? Phone call. Phone call. Whoa. Oh. But I have to say, I like text because I can text like four people at once. I like, I, like, I like a text because then I know what it's about. A phone call, I'm like, oh. Yeah. That's, uh, the, that's a sign of the times though, isn't it? Yeah. That a phone call makes you go, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Someone died? Like, oh. And... Finally, honesty or others' feelings? Honesty. Honesty. <laughs> Great, thanks, guys. So, mental health awareness is a huge topic at the moment. What should the approach be to supporting mental well health in the workplace, do you think? I just think it has to be about everybody, mm -hmm. so not just the crisis end. And that's historically what's happened. It's sort of in a shameful little corner. We've thought about mental illness, uh, maybe in the HR department or perhaps diversity and inclusion. But when we think about mental health at work, we have to think about how we all have mental health. How, it's, how do we normalize the conversations about mental health? Like you just did with us. How's your mental health today, right? Mm -hmm. Leading by example. So leaders need to be the ones normalizing that conversation. But also it's just about humanity. Every person kind of seeing each other and checking in and having empathy and being curious. So it has to be about everyone. Great. And what do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think it's really interesting, this this uh, the scoring your mental health, mm. uh, because I was actually asked that question for the first time at that breakfast seminar we had. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because, on the one hand, it kind of made mental health sort of quite scientific. It mm -hmm. was like, you know, this is about, you know, are you sleeping well? You know, um, are you seeing, are you doing enough exercise? Mm. And so it made me think from a very sort of scientific perspective on mental health, which I thought was interesting. But equally, it made me think, about my own mental health and actually it made me think actually maybe I'm not feeling that great today mm -hmm. and maybe I'm not as resilient as I think I am and maybe this whole discussion that's going on about mental health and society at the moment actually that is relevant to me mm -hmm. and so I think I think that's kind of broadly what we've got to think about mental health and within the workplace and and I think it comes down to and this is this is what I kind of push in, in everything that I do is empathy mm. you know we've got to understand that if somebody comes into the workplace and somebody is behaving really badly they might be bullying you the first question shouldn't be why are you being nasty to me the first question should be are you all right mm. and that's where empathy is difficult that's when it's hard when you can step outside and you kind of think and think a lot more deeply about the reactions that you're getting from somebody. Mm. It's a really interesting approach to have, actually. And I think we could apply that more. So thank you for that. Are there any negative aspects to the way that we're being open about mental health and the way things are being spoken about in terms of mental well-being at the moment? That's an interesting one, because I do, when I do consultancy in companies, you know, and I'm with top leaders and they're like, you know, the whole that snowflake generation thing is thrown about and they're thinking with all this openness, to, you know, is it ever an excuse or people just taking time off because they want to have a lion or whatever. And of course, with, with any kind of initiative, there may be people who could take advantage of the conversation in some way. But I think 
we need to almost push to a further extreme in order to find our middle ground, mm-hmm. just as we had we've, we, we have with diversity, with all sorts of other initiatives. You know, there's a challenge around the commercialization of um, mental health. So I've just been to two of the, the, the major mental health conferences in, in London, which were amazing because the conversation was, was being open and big leaders were talking about their mental health. But equally, there's so many kind of businesses popping up of like, we know this, we'll help you, we'll, you know. And mm-hmm. some of them are actually, I think, adding to the stigma side of the conversation because they're talking about illness or they're not using language appropriately about mental health and they're referring to illness when they're saying talking about mental health but I still think the more voices we have in this this space the better because sometimes we just we're, we're testing so many things in the UK Australia also but a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have access or this conversation in such an open way mm. so I think we need to be in this testing space where we so many things can pop up in order for us to really be able to test what works in businesses mm. interesting you should say that so what's the What's the conversation of topic in Australia? What sort of things are they testing there? So mental health first aid started in Australia. Mm-hmm. So they are equally, the, they're having, the government is, is more on board. They've had more research and reports around mental health in the workplace. And then the UK is uh, sort of following closely from mm-hmm. that. But even then, even though I say the, we're, we're ahead of the game, so to speak, like if I talk to American companies or in Europe or the Middle East or even Asia, the, the conversation just isn't as open yet. But even in the UK and Australia, there's like this massive continuum of people that are innovating and ones that are still well behind as far as and, and just want to tick a little box and be like, oh, we should be seen to saying be doing something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a long way to go. But I think the more conversation is out there, the better, because yeah. then we'll figure out what exactly works and how to find our balance within it. And also, do you think it's going to be is, is it a bespoke approach per organisation? I always approach it as a bespoke offering for an organization, but there are consistent themes Mm -hmm. that come up no matter what. If the program looks a little bit different, I I like it to be empowered so it's um, Mm self-organized. But the themes are, as me and Chris have talked about loads and as he features in his documentaries, empathy. So like, how can we do it with the baseline of leading by example, humanity, empathy, and then encourage people to start where they're at Mm -hmm. and create something that is bespoke for their culture? So if we give them the skills and the foundation, then they get to organize something that's really going to fit their culture rather than me just going, everyone should do one, two, three, right? Definitely. Thank you for that, Petro. And Chris, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think I think what this debate about mental, not debate, I mean, the, the openness about talking about mental health feels to me that it's still quite new. Mm. It feels to me this is a discussion that I wasn't having five, six years ago. And so I think that it does feel all-consuming, but I think it probably feels all-consuming because it's still new. But I think the, the, the longer we talk about it, the more ubiquitous it comes, it will just become a normality. And I think it might take a generation, but mm-hmm. I think it will be very much very front of mind in any business from um, going forward. And I think it's just it feels a bit fresh. It feels... Mm-hmm. It feels a bit new and people are just a bit unsure about it. And you have got different generations who have grown up with a very, very different attitude to mental Mm -hmm. health. Perhaps didn't even know what it was. Mm -hmm. Perhaps wasn't even a term that they would know, would be able to define. So I think, I think I can understand how there is this kind of, why are we bombarded with mental health all the time? I can understand why people feel that way. 
But I think it's just we just need to give it time. And it's such a good point just about the younger generation. So this is part of what what the driver is, Mm. is things like staff turnover. Mm -hmm. Um, Young people are looking for different things in the workplace than the older generation did. People don't stay in jobs forever. They want their values echoed. They want work-life balance. They want to be their whole selves at work. And so each generation is more and more like that. So if if workplaces don't kind of open up to this conversation, Mm -hmm. they end up sort of spending money on the crisis end of Mm long-term absence recruiting new people and so that like it just makes good business sense now to begin adapting workplaces to to create space for the younger generation coming in Mm. that's a really good point to make there actually that people's expectations of what a job looks like and and what those benefits are are completely different each generation now aren't they so thank you. Petra, mental health advisors, we've seen that being implemented in a number of organisations. You've just touched upon the fact that it's relatively not new, but something that we're doing a lot in the UK and in Australia. Do you feel that this works? Well, it. I don't think it's the one puzzle piece that solves all problems. There are also, because of the nature of how people get trained up, I would Mm. say there's vast inconsistencies with the quality and standards of who shows up to do it. So I've seen mental health first aiders who have clinical backgrounds and who have loads of experience, and they they use that content in an amazing way. Mm -hmm. I often see the after effect of it. So, you know, I come into a company, I say, what have you got already? We've got the yoga class, we've got some mindfulness, we've got mental health first aiders, cool. Who are the mental health first aiders? How do people know? Is anyone coming up to talk to them? And I'll often do sort of monthly or quarterly kind of supervision, kind of catch-ups with ambassadors or mental health first aiders. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, so we've got these cool lanyards and we've got this cool, like, we're on the internet, whatever, and nobody's coming up to us. And I spoke at a conference, actually, which was all mental health first aiders, and I was like, sometimes you feel like at the end of your two-day training, you're knighted, right? And you're like, go forth, you have this halo, and people will automatically come up to you and talk to you about their deepest, darkest secrets, right? And then when they don't, or when you test it and there's a bit of kind of defensiveness, they kind of go, oh my God, like, have I, am I doing it wrong? You know? So a lot of what I do is like, how do we empower these guys to create initiatives, positive mental health campaigns, and be visible in organizations in an uplifting way that isn't just when you're struggling, come to our coffee morning, let's have a cry and sing Kumbaya. I don't know what people do. It's, it's, what, it's the what next that I'm always interested in. Yeah. It's great to have people skilled up, but what happens next? How do you gain momentum with all the people that are part of this conversation so that they know who they are, people know who they are, and it actually creates a ripple effect? Thank you. I have a lot to say on that. (laughs) But I've also worked with some of the global mental health first aiders and talked about what we do, which is around leadership and around the positive end. Mm. And it's a collaboration piece because they're like, oh, yeah, we don't do that bit. So we answer to the we, the first aid, like if someone's having a panic attack, we've yeah. got people who are skilled up to do that. So you need that bit to help with crisis. But then you also need the full cultural sustainable change, which is what we bring mm. to, to kind of balance out the whole system. In terms of timelines, how how do you measure how effective any strategies are when they've been implemented? What What's your approach with that? So I'm really interested in all the tech stuff that's out there. There's, mm. uh, as I said, I was at these two conferences. There's so many like digital solutions popping up. I'm not sure any one of them is getting it just right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely lots of testing going on about how to get people on the on an app and kind of measuring their own mental health, that subjective side of things. 
we definitely measure maybe stress levels or our training and the effectiveness of that. But I think in the next two, three years, we're going to find the robust solution that actually allows us to measure like in a non big brothery way. Do you know what I mean? Because nobody wants that, like the kind of, they're stressed, yes, let's mark that down. Nobody wants that. But we want to have this inclusive approach to connection and be able to measure the long-term impact effectively. And I think in the next couple of years, that's going to show up. Cool. Thank you for that, Petra. And Chris, you, as a film producer, use the power of storytelling to address issues around mental well health or ill health um, and changing attitudes and behaviours. What's the benefit to taking this approach of storytelling? So it's, I mean, it's interesting because I think it kind of leads on from what, what Patrick was saying. And, and I think that, you know, if you're really going to change the attitudes and behaviours of people within an organisation, you've got to really reach that, reach the heart. Mm. And I think you've really got to, you, the, the behaviours, you can you can put in lots of, I think you can put in lots of different things like the mental health first aiders and lots of different mm-hmm. ideas like the yoga classes, et cetera, et cetera. But unless you're making that decision for yourself, unless it makes sense to you, mm. it's never going to work. I mean, I, I often I go into lots of big organisations and I, you walk into the reception area and there are always the values on the wall in the reception area. And you kind of think, if you've got to put it up, <laughs> you probably haven't got them. Yeah. If you've got to remind people, yeah. they're probably not there. Yeah. And so it's got to be something that's within and it's got to be something that's really striking at the very heart of you and making an, and making an emotional truth for you. And that's what the films do. The films are not there to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. The films are there to say, look, here is a story that is based on research and into your, in, in, like I do a lot of work with hospitals, you know, patients or whatever the pathway is. And it's about saying, it's those are the people that you're serving how does your behaviour, how can your behaviour change to make it better for them? How can you help and be professionally curious to think that there's more going on for that individual, whether that be a patient or whether that be a colleague as well? But I think it's got to be self-reflection. It's got to be something that you kind of find yourself. And I think, I suppose, coming back to your question about what these films do and what I'm hoping that they will do, Mm. is ultimately it's about professional curiosity it's about thinking that person's behaving that way but why are they behaving that way you know there's probably stuff going on Mm. there's probably other stuff that I'm not seeing I'm seeing a behavior but I'm not seeing what is the cause of that behavior I'd just like to find out a little bit more about what kind of makes you guys tick so Petra my question to you is what makes you feel inspired so this is going to, okay, this isn't going to sound very British because it may come across as arrogant, but my future self inspires me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I know where I've come from, mm-hmm. right? So I was born in a cult. I didn't have an education as a kid. And I've kind of worked my way to a place of purpose and meaning and good mental health and good parenting and all these sorts of things. And so I do do the, like, I visualize myself a year from now. Mm-hmm. And not just like not just like achievement or finances or things that people think you want to acquire, but like how am I going to feel? What are the experiences I'm going to have? Who am I going to be? Like how much am I going to grow as a person from this day 
to a year from now or three years from now? And what stages will I be on? What conversations will I be having? So I kind of always hold on to what's possible within myself. Because mm-hmm. if you can change a whole life within five years, a decade, you know, like radically alter it. Imagine what's possible in the next five, ten years. Mm. So um, if I'm allowed to say myself in the course, future, no. then I'm just going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> There's no wrong answers. <laughs> and Chris, what inspires you? So I'm really inspired by music. Mm-hmm. Films inspire me. I would say that. But, um, <laughs> but, but inspiration for me does come from, you know, when, I'm, when I make these films and I meet people who are doing something that they're passionate about and they're doing something for other people. They're going the extra mile. It kind of, it's very humbling when you mm-hmm. meet people who are doing a job where they're there for the vocation of the work despite the emotional labour of the mm. work, that those individuals inspire me. I feel like you will have that impact on others, though, as well. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, you do. Like, I think both of you. Your films are just very, so profound. Mm. But I think you're right. It's the, 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 the stories of... Because I've got... My podcast is Adversity to Advantage, so that so many people who've been through something in the similar way that you interview people that have been through something so profound and even unimaginable to us, you know? And what the how they survive it, thrive, like give back to others. I mean, your documentaries just make me cry the whole time. But yeah, it's just that it's the everyman. It's not the person who's climbing the mountain all the time. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to ask you both, what book or for you, Chris, film, would you recommend to people, other people and why? So, Chris, let's start with you. Okay, so... I'd love to say some really obscure art house films. <laughs> yes. um, but Goodwill Hunting, oh, as you're yeah. familiar, that, that really... That's inspirational. That's such an amazing film. And that, that's a film, if you haven't seen it, it's basically a film which is about this really gifted janitor in the school whose talent for maths is discovered by a lecturer. But he can't realise his talent mm-hmm. because he's burdened by the trauma of his childhood. And it's only through the relationship that he strikes up with a psychologist, Robin Williams, that he's able to break through the trauma that this this guy has and able to be released into the world effectively. And what's quite interesting about this film is that when it was pitched in Hollywood, mm-hmm. it was pitched as a thriller. Was um, it? I yeah, didn't know that. It was pitched as a thriller. It was basically about these different companies who are desperate to try and get hold of this like really gifted individual to to work within their corporations and then somebody got hold of it and just said no 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 this isn't the film mm. this film is about the relationship between the psychologist and the and the vulnerable young man mm. it's incredibly powerful and they both teach each other they stuff. both that's and what's that's, powerful that's what's powerful is that they both they fight against each other and they both challenge each other and both of them get something out of it it's an incredibly powerful film, founded sort of in this this kind of sense of this guilt that you hold. Mm-hmm. You hold this guilt your whole life, and it just needs somebody to tell you that it's not your fault. And that's the really powerful moment mm. in the film. Um, so I'd recommend that. Can I have a book as well? Of course you can. Any Human Heart, William Boyd. Okay. So it's a really interesting book. It basically tells the story of a guy from childhood through to death. And things go well, things Mm -hmm. go really badly, things go well again, things go badly again. 
and it's the human experience. Okay. And I think, and it's it, it was very inspiring to me mm-hmm. that that kind of that that we all have this. We're all on that journey, and we all go up. We mm-hmm. all go down. Mm-hmm. But let's just embrace that. Thank you, Petra. So speaking of trauma. I'm reading a short book that I think applies to actually a whole lot of people. Sometimes we think trauma is something super profound or extreme, but actually a lot of us have experienced different levels of trauma, and it's mm-hmm. essentially our body holding on to stuff in a, and, and only being a, capable of a fight-flight response mm-hmm. rather than like feeling it. So it's a short book, Healing Trauma, by Peter Levine, who created a whole type of therapy, but the book doesn't sound therapeutic. It's just like, hey, this is how animals release trauma. Humans don't seem to have that sense. We hold on to it until it pops up in other ways. And then one that I read every year is called Shattered Lives by Camilla. I can never say her last name, but she was the founder of Kids Company. And it really, because I used to work with young people. I used to work with young offenders. Yeah. And the thing that you said, Chris, about behavior and what's the story underneath, and this is like extreme behavior. Mm. So young offenders, you know, know, she uses an example of a kid who just throws a chair across the room in, in, in the middle of like a parent's evening or something. And the automatic reaction of a school institution would be, let's crack down on this. And that's the bad kid right Mm -hmm. and the story of profound like abuse and hurt and that Mm -hmm. this kid is holding on to and that's the only way that he can communicate I mean like talk about I mean it's made me see the entire world differently every single day what reading that book okay so what is your number one tip for making the world a better place Uh, look I think it's it is. It's about what we've been talking about. Yeah. It's it's empathy. It's it's about understanding each other and understanding that we all are human and that we all bring lots of different experiences, good and bad. And and being able to have that discernment that my the world doesn't revolve around me, mm. and that we're all in this together. I'd echo that. So empathy, slowing down enough to actually see people. In our fast-paced society, I think that just helps because it helps us have curiosity and develop empathy, which comes through slowing down long enough to actually take time to think of, you know, life from somebody else's perspective. I think, and I think I'd add to that, I think that's, you know, when I talked earlier about the mental health questionnaire, that was a moment for me. That was a moment to think, to reflect. Mm. And I think I'd like to think that, the films that I make do that as well. Mm. And they're not just, it's not just about the films. It's not just about, oh, these are great films that make me think and make me, and move me. It's like, I'm going to take an hour, mm. films aren't that long, but they're normally about half, about 20 minutes, and but the discussion around it lasts an hour. I'm going to take an hour and I'm just going to like stop and I'm just going to reflect. Mm. And I think we need to do more of that. I think yeah. we need to just, it gives just, us information. just stop because... Because it's only by stopping do you then find those inspirations mm. and find those moments and those moments of self-reflection that you can then build on. But also take action. So off the back of that, that reflection and we, we do need to do the stuff, you know. So it's, it starts with from within, like how can we be the person we need to be? 
But so many times, I mean, I interviewed this guy who had a breakdown on the London Underground, and he tells this story very profoundly of how he, his knees were going to buckle, and he, that was the time after six months of build-up that his burnout and everything was going to show up. People were on their devices, their phones, their books, whatever. They moved out of the way during London rush hour so he could lay on the floor and have a breakdown and nobody talked to him or went down and connected. So, like, it's all good and well to for us to read the books and th talk about the ideas and even reflect. But unless we're then going to translate that into seeing what's around us and doing something, you, it has to come full circle, right, to actually make the world a better place. Yeah, no, definitely. Final question. What's the most important thing you've learned in your life? I think follow your heart, but I think it's more than just following your heart. I think it's listening, mm -hmm. allowing yourself to listen to your heart, and then you'll know what to follow, because then everything will make sense. But it's difficult to do that, yeah. because there's a whole lot of things that are kind of saying, no, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And it's once, you've, once you listen and you follow your heart, then everything will fall into place, mm -hmm. and you'll find your place in the world. But that's hard. Mm. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. And I think it's about finding that focus and that resilience to think, no, 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 this is what it is. This is what it is. And I'm going to stay faithful to that. Mm. Like you said, I think that's, it's it sounds very simplistic, but it's a really hard thing mm. to have the confidence mm. to do. Mm. And I think sometimes, especially when you're younger, you might need that support to be able to feel that you can do that. And kind of go against the grain almost. But yeah, it's must be very enlightening to be able to 100% say, I've done everything my way. Mm. You know? Mm. Petra. Loads, always learning. <laughs> but I agree with that one. And fear is an illusion. Because I think so many live, people live their lives by fear, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes you just have to do it afraid. I love that quote from Brené Brown. It's just like, fear's just there, just do it anyway. And, and it's okay to be you. That's probably my single most profound life lesson that I continue to remind myself of. You know, moving every year of my life to different countries, I learned that skill of adaptability, mm. which was I can be who you need me to mm. be and who you need me to be and who you need me to be. But who am I underneath all of that? So it kind of connects with that. Like, how do you even listen to who you are underneath in order to be that person? So learning to be myself and to show up as I am, it's actually brought me success as well as happiness and all sorts of things. But the fear says, if I'm fully me, I will be rejected. I will be kicked out. I will not belong, like all that stuff. But if you just be you, like that's the beauty of humanity. Mm. Yeah, it's the beauty. Oh, what's a great way to end the session, guys. Thanks so much for coming in today and sharing your thoughts and opinions. It's been absolutely great. And hopefully we'll work together again soon. For sure. Thank Bye. You. Right, thank you. Thanks. Thanks.